clear eyes, hearts open, can can't lose, lose open minds. everyone. In episode zero, we talked a little bit about our journeys to hockey and the way we do fandom. In this episode one, we're going to do a deep dive into a subject that the three of us have been thinking about a lot lately, the question of how fans individually and collectively process periods of major fandom upheaval. Today, we're going to use Evgeny Malkin's recent near departure from the Pittsburgh Penguins to explore the whole range of reactions that we observed in ourselves and in others and how those reactions overlapped with or differed from what we saw among more traditional sports fans. We're going to talk about how sports can help us experience and express big emotions, while also diving into the kinds of emotions or emotional experiences that mainstream sports culture pressures people to disavow. A brief content warning, near the end of this episode, we will briefly discuss suicide in the context of two other fandoms. We'll warn you before we move into that section, so if you want to skip it, that's okay. Thanks so much for joining us. So I'm going to give a short little summary of the events leading up to and culminating in Evgeny Malkin re-signing with the Penguins. This all begins early to mid-May when the Penguins were doing their end of postseason interviews with the media. Both Evgeny Malkin and Chris Letang were up for contract renewals. Their long contracts had run out and they were gearing up to renegotiate with our new general manager, Ron Hextall. So leading up to this, there was much chatter, both from official venues like Team Beat Reporters and unofficial, like ourselves, quibbling about on social media. And the general consensus from the media was that Chris Letang was going to leave. He had had a great year. He was in fantastic shape for a man of his age, which makes him sound ancient, but he's like 35. (laughs) Right, exactly. And he was known to be prideful. So there was a belief that it would be incredibly difficult to give him what we wanted because we are not a team that is, you know, flush with cash at the moment. Um, In contrast, Evgeny Malkin was thought to be somewhat of a lock. He had said much earlier in the season, I believe, when asked about this very thing, his joke was, I'm pretty rich guy. He said that he was, you know, rich. He wanted to stay with the Penguins. Sid and Gino were like brothers to him and he wanted to stay. And he repeated those sentiments in May, but there was a hint of something else there where he said, I'm ready to go away. I'll be happier if I stay, but if they decide they don't want me, I'll be okay. And I think in the moment, most of us didn't think too much about it because he had acknowledged he would take a pay cut. And when Sidney Crosby was asked about Gino leaving, Sid said, yeah, you know, I want to play with them for the rest of their careers. So we were all under the false assumption that this would be a very neat little contract all tied up in a bow and presented to us within like a week of the season ending. And that was not the case. 
time went on and in terms of the penguins figuring out all of their free agents they signed brian rust to a contract very early on and that was a huge shocker because if people thought chris Tang was going to leave they would they were convinced rusty would leave just because he's young he's talented and he has leadership experience now so they signed rusty which shocked and surprised everyone and then we heard that Ron Hextall was prioritizing the signing of Chris Letang. He is integral to the defense and to the blue line in general. And the fact that they would want to prioritize signing him, not a surprise. What was a surprise is that it sounded like they were close to actually getting something done. But some time went on and then they end up signing Chris, which was a shock. And I think a lot of people, myself included, were incredibly surprised in a very pleased way, don't get me wrong, that we were able to get Chris back. And then attention turned to Evgeny Malkin because Chris brought up in his remarks to the media that he, you know, was hoping that his discount, because he took, what, six mil for six years, and he took that discount because he wanted Gino to stay. He wanted to leave money on the table for Gino. And then some time went by and we didn't hear anything. And then the news article started coming out. And it turns out that Gino, apparently, if we're to believe the media, was feeling slighted. Because the deadline to sign your unrestricted free agents was coming up and they had not moved. And apparently from what we were hearing is that negotiations had not moved and they stayed not moving until two days before the deadline happened. And we heard that Evgeny Malkin had cut off contact with the Pittsburgh Penguins. Apparently his feelings were hurt. He felt slighted. He felt like he was not being appreciated and he believed he was not getting a just deal. And that was a moment of panic. It felt dire. He announced that he was going to try free agency, which he has never done before. He announced, I believe it was the 11th, July 11th, he said he was going to test the open market. And just two days later, the Penguins signed Ricard Raquel. And things were not looking good. For a, for a moment, we, a lot of us, genuinely believed that Gino had played his last game in a Penguins uniform. And then, naturally, like, 12 hours before <laughs> before free agency began at 11 p.m. the penguins themselves dropped the news that they had gotten Evgeny Malkin to agree to a four-year um, 6.1 million contract extension. This was down to the wire. It was incredibly stressful and it was contested in a way that a lot of us did not expect for Gino. And what we wanted to talk about was our emotional roller coaster and also how it compared to non-transformative fans, not universally, but in general, and how we saw differences between the people who are invested in the ship of, you know, Sid and Gino versus those who are hockey fans in what I said earlier, in a fanish way and not necessarily a fandom way. Well, I can already tell you that just you retelling that story has made me go through speed run all the stages of grief. My heart is pounding, I'm sweating, I'm having a stress reaction. <laughs> so I'm clearly dealing with it. I'm clearly dealing with it in a in an incredibly healthy way. And I've I have no need of therapy or any other way to um deal with <laughs> what happened there. Oh, well, before we get to to your trauma, Kit. I wanted, which I don't, I mean that jokingly, but also with sensitivity, because yeah. I know we were all like on the verge of actually losing it uh, during this whole ordeal. Um, oh, I wanted to start with us talking about how we saw people reacting in ways unlike us. 
by which I mean those who were, you know, willing to let Gina walk or who thought Gina was asking for too much or who didn't care that Gina felt slighted, which we did see some of. And those are people operating in a fandom environment that is very distinct from ours. Yeah, I think one of the things that's always so interesting to me is it's hard to tell how how large the contingent of Penn's fans who hate Gino is. <laughs> like, because they're so loud, you know, in the athletic comments or on Twitter, or whatever. It feels like there's so many of them, which can't be totally true. You know, like that can't be like a totally accurate no. cross-section. But but I feel like we saw, a lot, or at least like in my like spheres or whatever, I saw a lot of people being like, well, obviously the age thing, right? Like he's, um, you know, he's kind of like too old and like sell him to the glue factory and so on, right? And then this fantasy thinking about we're definitely going to get somebody younger and better who's going to stay with the team forever, which was not really grounded in anything, right? But just like that confidence that we could get somebody else. And also the sheer like willful desire to avoid any sentimentality whatsoever, yeah. Like something, some some turn of phrase I saw repeated quite often was that the Penguins don't owe Gino anything because he's already been paid for past accomplishments. And something that I kept seeing was this idea that because, you know, like Gino's old contract in these people's view was his compensation for his past performance. And because of that, you know, he had been paid handsomely for a very long time. He was the highest paid player on the Penguins, even more so than Sidney Crosby. And these people were like, well, he's been paid his dues. He worked for them. And now we don't think he's necessarily earned any loyalty from the team or from the fan base because he's already been compensated monetarily for his past work. And I mean, you know, if you don't treat it like a business, if you have actual emotional feelings about some guy on the team like why are you as a man caring for the contract situation of another man is that gay some people say yes sources say yes so some people really want to make absolutely sure that they are the rational logical alpha sigma grindset males and there's no homosexual feelings going on here and I think it's like the the extreme version of the whole like play for the logo on the front and not the name on the back mindset that a lot of very chest beating hockey fans will say that they like about hockey as opposed to like other mainstream sports, which I don't buy. But it's kind of that same mindset taken to a logical extreme of I don't give a damn about the heroes of yesteryear. I only care about how good we're going to be now and in the future. And it feels very short-sighted, but it also feels very emotionally cut off in a way that I have a difficulty relating to because my attachment to the team is very much emotional towards the players. I like the team, but I like the team because I like the players. I don't like the players because I like the team. And I think that's not necessarily the case for a lot of legacy fans. Like, you know, those who are born and raised Pittsburghers, whose fathers' fathers and their mothers and aunts and uncles are all, you know, Pittsburgh sports fans. So perhaps I think there's some ability to kind of remove yourself from any sentimentality about the players because you've seen them come and go as you've grown up and, you know, watched the, the, the ebbs and flows of the team. But um, it's very alien compared to how we do fandom. And I also think it's a disservice to the kinds of emotions they could be unlocking in hockey. But I also acknowledge that that's just 
me thinking that I do hockey in a great way, and I think they should too. So to each their and own. You're but... right, <laughs> and we're right. Damn it. What's interesting too about that is it's almost like there's that desire to cut yourself off from emotion. I think one of the things I noticed with Gino is it seems like even though they're saying like no emotional attachment, no emotions in sports, it feels like their dislike of Gino is very emotional, right? Like they have like a really intense, for whatever reason, they have like a really intense negative perception of him. That is part of the desire to see him gone and to be like, we don't owe him anything, right? Right. You don't see that with Tanger. You know, he Tanger's old. Yeah, and it's so weird and interesting to me why Gino seems to draw out an intensity of of kind of like emotional loathing, right? Yeah. In a way that like Tanger, like getting a contract somewhere else or resigning or whatever, doesn't like seem to like kind of elicit that same. I mean, not to say that he's like he's like universally popular because obviously there are people who have the same kind of attitude towards him. That oh they my do god, towards yeah. Gino. It just seems like. I encounter the anti-Gino sentiment. It's like much, much louder and much more like personal. Right. And it's very much, I think, a thing of people think they're owed something by Gino and they don't always think Gino can meet their extremely high expectations. I can compare it to um, an old coworker of mine, born and raised Pittsburgh area, as was her family. And her father was a Gino disliker. He considered him lazy. He did not like the way he played and he wanted him gone. For like a long time, like we would talk about this years ago, long before the contract coming up was even really considered. Now, that's not a new attitude. Like there's always been like the trade Gino cries of war every every <laughs> off season. But um, something that I had been thinking about in like the last week or so was how when I had joined Penguins fandom and I had become a Penguins fan and dedicated myself to the Penguins as like my primary free time interest. I had kind of just accepted that there was a contingent of the mainstream fandom that did not like Gino, and I had kind of resigned myself to it in the same way that I had resigned myself to the fact that there are some broader hockey fans who are always going to think Sidney Crosby is a crybaby, right? Even though I think that's empirically false at this point in his career. I just assumed it was like, well, these guys are set in their ways. They're always going to believe what they're going to believe. And that's just the way it is. And I think that was me doing a bit of a disservice to Gino because in the same way that I think the dislike of Sid is a very deeply repressed and coded anger at his talent, his mannerisms, and in some ways the projection of gender onto him. That's a whole episode. Yeah, oh my god. (laughs) There have been academic articles written about Sidney Crosby and Canadian masculinity, and we will talk about them. But in the same way that, you know, Sid has been this locus of projection for a lot of dissatisfied male hockey fans, so too has Gino, I think, in, of course, the more xenophobic-coded, cultural barrier-enabled manner. And it's something that I like to refer to as cold war brainworms. is that the scientific title or yes yeah yeah you can quote dr beck on that one but it's very much i think has to do with the fact that he is russian when he came to the states he could not speak english for a very long time he could not speak english very well and was too shy and anxious to really give it a go for a long time as he knew how he was perceived And I think that stopped the fan base from connecting to him very deeply as time went on. And he's also benefited, as we all know, from having Sid on his team and Sid being able to take most of the media heat. 
So I think Gino has remained a relative unknown to a lot of Penguins fans just by virtue of the language barrier and also preconceived notions they have about Russians, which they do have. Like, you don't have to look any further than, like, the stuff yeah. that Don Cherry used to say about Gino to, can to I see that. Throw, can I throw a maybe, I don't know, a theory out there if I want to psychoanalyze? Um, this is the time and place. Fans who hate Gino. I think, you know, it might be this idea that, I mean, you gotta you gotta be dissatisfied with someone on the team, right? Because obviously, like, you're not winning the cup every year, so something has to be going wrong. So there's got to be someone you dislike or someone where, you know, you have a hot take. You have, you know what could fix the team. And I feel like Gino is is right in that sweet spot of not being, like, insane, like saying, oh, we got to you know, we got to murder Sidney Crosby, but it's still like out there and like hot takey enough to get people's attention to be like, you know, like I, I know the secret thing that will fix the team. So maybe, maybe Gino is like right in that sweet spot also. Plus all the other things you said, like the xenophobia. I think he's a good candidate for that. Historically, for the Penguins fandom, that's, that was Flower back when Mark andre Fleury played for the Penguins. He was the whipping boy because he was streaky and he had his moments. And he's he a was, goalie. Yeah. And so, like, the, you know, the game rests on the goalie's back. And um, after Flower left, it was Matt Murray. Is Matt Murray had his downfall after, you know, I think that was, what, 2018? Or 19, maybe, when he kind of fell off of a cliff a bit performance-wise and stopped being you know, the, the the rookie star that we had for the back-to-back. And Gino has always kind of been in that, that point where, like you said, he's partially in the spotlight, but not enough like Sid. Like, he's not the city's golden boy like Sid is. And I think that the fact that he's still high-profile enough that you know who he is, but he's not, you know, the coveted favorite child puts him in a dangerous point for being the target of those well, something needs to change. So how about this one? He's paid the most. Let's get rid of him. Yeah, and they're Many also thoughts. wrong. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> Many thoughts, we, head full. We hate them. Anyways, so <laughs> th- that's kind of an idea of what we've seen from the non-transformative fandom talking heads. Now, that's not to say they were all like that. There were plenty of people that wanted Gino back. If you went to like any Instagram post the week leading up to the signing that the Penguins put on, like they were totally unrelated to Gino, but it would be like sign Malkin, sign Malkin, sign Malkin. Where's Gino? Like people wanted him back. It's just, he's always had this kind of loud contingent of people who decided they did not care for him and decided that the team would be better off without him. And that is a sharp contrast to what we experienced in transformative fandom. Yeah, should we like just dig into like how we felt? Like it was like probably the worst I felt apart from like real tragedy. (laughs) Let's talk about therapy, everyone. Like, so here's our therapy session about how horrible we felt. The doctor is in. Yeah, exactly. So just watching this all unfold. And, you know, the let's begin, I think, by talking about how did you feel about this situation at the end of the season? Like it's locker clean out, they're giving the remarks. You know, Gino makes everyone laugh by saying that he's got two brothers, one Canadian, one French Canadian, and we're all heading into this offseason preparing for the contract situation. Where were you at that time mentally? What were your thoughts? Were you positive, negative, optimistic? What were we thinking? 
So I think for me, my default attitude towards RPF fandom is like expect the worst, right? Like I'm always like trying to prepare myself for the worst possible outcome so that if that doesn't happen, it's a nice surprise. And if it does happen, I'll just have suffered a lot longer before I suffer more. (laughs) So I think that like, I think that I was feeling like pretty nervous about it, especially because of the way that we exited the playoffs and just reading some of the stuff about like, and, you know, just like all the stuff that people were saying about like, oh, it's the last dance for this core, blah, 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 whatever. I was definitely more more convinced that Latang would leave. I hoped that they would work something out with Gino. But I was like nervous about like Gino's response where he was saying like, if they want to move on from me and get younger, I'll understand and I'll go somewhere else. And I think like I spent a lot of time like trying to like process that through humor, you know, like making that like something a little bit funny. But it's also like I think I had bad feeling in the pit of my stomach basically since we dropped out of the playoffs. And then I think the longer it dragged on, the more nervous I got about that. And then I think that kind of, I don't know, period of what was it like three or four days, like where it really seemed like he was going to leave or, you know, it really seemed like things weren't going well. And then it started seeming like he was definitely going to leave. I just felt, I felt like I was actively grieving and I felt like so like sick, like physically sick with nerves, you know, about what was going to happen. Yeah. That was kind of my like journey. (laughs) The dark days. Oh my God. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm always, I'm complaining, like, I think the worst is gonna happen. But very, very secretly deep in my heart, I always think it's gonna work out. And I remember I was having a visitor over another hockey friend, Allie. And um, we were just like walking around town. And every 20 minutes or so, we were just like, you know, sighing about Gino, like, oh, do you think Gino's gonna sign soon? Oh, he better sign soon. Like, checking our phones, like, huh, did, did Gino sign yet? So already pretty early on, I was, I wasn't really nervous because I thought he was gonna sign or was sure he was gonna sign, but I was always already like in in complaining mode or in doomsaying mode. It was and, weighing um, on you heavily, right? It was. It was weighing on me, and then I I feel like. I have kind of a hard time differentiating between like, did I feel bad about real life stuff that was happening at the time because I was already feeling bad about Gino or did I feel so bad about Gino because of real life stuff? Like it all kind of came together in this big lump of bad emotions that I couldn't really differentiate anymore. Like it was, it it all just felt bad and I couldn't tell in what way I was projecting it was just this cloud of bad feelings and then I tried to pull away from from fandom or from kind of any kind of content um, about that because all those pieces came out all those yeah um, Yohi and Rossi and then all those reporters talking about how you know like Gino might not sign and it's looking less less and less likely that Gino's got a sign and I felt physically bad and at the same time, I was craving any kind of person in the fandom or whoever being like, oh, no, this is why he's going to sign. Like, I was craving content like that. I was trying to actively look for people who would tell me that he was going to sign, even though rationally, I knew that neither of those things really had any impact on the situation. I just was trying to find something to balance my emotions. And then um, I remember when... Uh, <laughs> When I woke up and I had the the notification on my phone and just people messaging me that Gino had signed, I couldn't believe it at first. 
Like, I literally couldn't believe it. And still, I will sometimes check the NHL app because I'm like, but did he sign? But did he really sign? Can they can they still kick him away? Can they is that is that legal? Can they take him away from us? What if they trade him now? Like I know it I know it's not happening, but I feel like I have abandonment issues now where I'm like afraid that they're gonna take him from me if I'm not careful. So um I'm clearly dealing with everything that happened. But then it was just like honestly, I, I felt like I had a like I was I was reborn in my fandom life. I was so deliriously happy like I was smiling for days I was just everyone all of my friends who saw me that week were like oh my god you look so much better you seem so happy and I was I was like yeah thank you uh my hockey man got his contract and they were like cool what does that mean (laughs) yeah um but I was so happy like I, I kept having these electric shocks of just giddiness and I still kind of feel like that, like, especially when I think of kind of the alternative history version of where I'm sitting here now and Gino is not a penguin and how miserable I would feel and how incredibly good I feel instead. Yeah, a little bit later, I definitely want to dig into like hypotheticals, like what if this went a different way? I will say for my experience, I was... I say this fondly, surrounded by a bunch of like doomsday people. (laughs) So I am, I consider myself a realist, but I think I need to accept that deep in my heart, I am an optimist because historically things work out, I find. That's just the, the story of my life so far. And that translated into fandom. So when the people around me were like at the beginning of the off season, were like, oh God, is he gonna sign? I was like, please, like, come on, it's Gino. Like, what else is he going to do? Like, where else does he want to be? So I was, I wasn't saying that though, because I was trying to be very sensitive to my friend's emotions. I had a lot of people who were really, really nervous about this. So I was trying to be an optimist while also not being like rude about it, because I will admit that the worrying really got to me in a way like that it makes me worry. I'm kind of an optimist as a self-defense mechanism, you know, if, if I'm not worrying about it, then I'm okay. But if other people start worrying about it and I care about those people, then it can weigh on me heavily. So just for my own mental well-being, I was like, this is going to work out. Gino's going to come back. It's go- it's going to be fine. And the Tanger, for the Rusty and then Tanger re-signings, where I'm like, oh my God, they're keeping the band together. Like, I was all but convinced. I'm like, of course Gino's coming back. Like, as soon as I heard that Tanger took six mil a year, I was like, oh my God, they're going to announce Gino tomorrow. This is all working out. Everything's coming up back right now. This is perfect. And I really didn't have that much doubt because, and here here come the, sh- the shipper glasses. I was like, Sid's not going to let that happen. Sid isn't going to let Gino play for another team. Sid doesn't want that. Which, like, I think is kind of true, but I also acknowledge that, yeah. like, I have my reasons for thinking that. So... You know, I was going in with that mentality of like, this is all going to work out and people are really worried, but it's all going to work out and we'll laugh about it later. And shit did not get real for me until the news article started coming out that like Gino feels slighted. And I was like, well, shit, because I think we know enough of Gino's temperament through the decade of reporting that's been done on him that we know he's prideful and we know he's emotional. And as soon as those reports started coming out that, like, Gino is feeling offended and not happy, I was like, oh, I don't think that's good. Because if there's a way to piss him off, 
and hurt him enough to get him out of there, it's going to be like those personal slights. So that made me uneasy. And I was like, this doesn't feel good. I think they're going to get it resolved, but this does not feel good. And I don't like it. And things really came crashing down around me when the news broke on the 11th that Gina was going to free agency. Because I I was in disbelief. Because unlike the rest of you, um, and I say that mostly to Jess and to my other friends were who, who were like preparing for Gino to leave. I had friends telling me that they were like trying to like speed run the stages of grief just to prepare themselves and get ready for it. I was not doing that. I was worrying about it. And I was like, I was thinking about it. I was thinking about, you know, what's my fandom going to look like after this? But like not deeply enough because I didn't believe it would happen. But I was so blindsided by Gino leaking that he was going to free agency because I truly did not believe that was going to happen. I was in utter disbelief about it. It also happened at a very bad time for me in terms of like real life stuff. I was in the middle of a very like emotionally fraught trip somewhere. And then I had another trip to take after that. Like when the news broke that Gino was going to free agency, I was sitting in an airport and I was just like tears like streaming down my face, trying like desperately trying to be normal. It was just this utter shock because I I had I had really thought that it would not come to this. And then it did. I guess one of the things that it revealed to me is that like, I think I'm not a hockey fan. You know what I mean? Like I enjoy the game and I like watching the sport and stuff, but I was a Sid and Gino fan and I'm here for the transformative fandom aspects. And I feel like a huge part of my grieving was not the idea that an athlete would sign with another team as like part of his career or whatever. My grief was thinking like, I saw with One Direction, like how fandoms die, you know, like these really close knit communities of writers and like what happens, the kind of low deterioration of daily fandom activity when the well dries up. I feel like I was grieving not even not even the idea that Gino wouldn't retire a penguin. Like obviously I was sad about that, but I feel like what I was really grieving is this anticipation that it was going to end, like this beautiful thing in my life was going to end. Yeah. No, I I deeply relate to that. Yeah. I I'm it devastates me because something I was thinking about a lot when the news started coming out that Gino was feeling slighted and things started turning. I was incredibly concerned because I was like, so much of my life at this point has been built up around hockey. And my interest in hockey has been because of Sid and Gino. Don't get me wrong. I think after Sid and Gino retire, I think I'll still watch hockey. I don't know if I'll watch every game like I do now. You know, I'll still be a Penguins fan, but not in the same way I am now. Like I've already like mentioned to people, you know, I really love living in Pittsburgh And I don't know if Pittsburgh's forever. You know, once Sid and Gina retire, I don't know if I'll stay around. And I think that's kind of fun and keeps life interesting. But the fact that I have all of my eggs in this basket, because I don't really do other fandoms. Like, I have other interests. I have books that I love deeply. And I'm like, I'll follow the fans of those books on, like, Tumblr or, you know, other social media. But nothing consumes my life like hockey has for the last six years to the point that I moved to get closer to it. And I was kind of panicking because I was like, what happens if the fandom falls apart? Like, we're not a big fandom. Like, even within the hockey RPF space anymore, there's a couple handfuls of us that are, like, actively writing and participating. And I was thinking, well, what happens if that goes away? And what happens if my friends find other things that they're interested and I'm not? You know, are those friendships going to survive? Is this community that's become such a lifeline to me during the pandemic going to survive? What happens when I'm stuck here in Pittsburgh and everything that I came here for is going away? 
Like I uprooted my life for this. What happens next? And I was like catastrophizing and trying to think of like, where is this going to go? And I was kind of at a loss because it was this emotional landscape that I knew would come one day. Hockey is not forever. Sid and Gino playing is not forever. But I thought I had longer. And suddenly I was looking down the barrel of the gun thinking that might have been it. I went to the Penguins last practice, their last open practice before the postseason because they closed the practices to the public during the postseason. And I went because I was secretly a little anxious about Gino. You know, people were talking about it online. And even though I was a relentless optimist, I was still nervous. But I went and I took some pictures of Sid and Gino skating around together just in case. And I thought it wouldn't happen. And then there was a real threat of it happening. And I was like, what is my life now? Because this is such a big part of it. It's a scary thought. Do you also feel like now that this kind of fear was over from one second to the next, I'm having a really hard time letting go of it? Like there's still this anxiety that I feel like I, I can't really let out. I think I have, I'm the kind of person who will run over the, like the rail ties of my emotions multiple times and I'll think about them again and again to figure out how they went. I think it's just a way of like self-analysis. And I haven't done that as much with this, I think, because my dread and fear over it was very last minute compared to a lot of other people, where I know people like one of my best friends who is also a fic writer, she's already written a fic about like the Sid goes down to Miami to talk to Gino situation, because that's how she's processing her emotions over it. So I think I... For, for me, this podcast is doing that a little bit, but um, it hasn't been as obsessive simply because I was kind of late to the party about like actual belief that it was going to end. And I was also incredibly stressed out with like travel and stuff like that, that it was like this whole cacophony of situations. And then I ended up in like this wonderful vacation, like the day that the news broke. And so I was like prancing around really happily on my vacation like nothing is ever going wrong life is beautiful everything is wonderful and like I think I like healed myself through ignorance in that moment yeah Kit I I feel like I've kind of not like let go of the anxiety but I definitely have been like I've been channeling it into like humor as much as possible like trying to make the things that I was feeling like more you know just like playing out the funny like versions of what could have happened or what went on behind the scenes or whatever you know like I feel like that's one of my like coping mechanisms with extreme stress But then I also feel like I just got like this kind of um, like the high of things working out was so intense. And it was also like it just felt like something clicked back into place. I have been unable to read or write thick for like a month now because I'm just like so anxious about like this stuff. And then I have a bunch of life transition stuff happening right now, career transition stuff. And so like it felt like all of these different pillars of my life were like really unstable. And then this one like being like locked back into place has suddenly made everything feel better, right? It's like I feel a million times better. And so even though I'm like doing some of the like replaying of the negative emotions, I feel First of all, I feel so good about it, like that it's okay and it's resolved. And then the second thing I think I feel is like um, I have a deep appreciation for how this kind of fandom event can spark like a fandom renaissance almost, you know, like give a burst of incredible new emotion to fix into headcanons and stuff like that. And so I think like I moved out of the like anxiety and panic stage into the giddy euphoria and then also into that feeling of like, 
oh my God, like instead of my fandom dying and all of my creative activity dying with it, instead I'm going to be getting like this incredible burst of <laughs> like creative energy and like collective creative energy around this event that has happened. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, I'm feeling good, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I keep coming back to this alternative universe where everything's miserable right now. And I'm like, I am not living through that timeline. I'm living in the best timeline. Yeah, no, that's, that's been such a boon, like such a blessing. Because again, I was like panicking about what's my life going to look like? Like, am I going to want to go to these games? I was considering like trying to figure out a way to like afford season tickets until they were like maybe we don't get Gina I'm like well fuck like, what am I gonna do so the fact that I'm not living in the world where I have to like reckon with the with the consequences of my decisions to you know alter my life in very large ways and and also just the friendships that I've made like my closest friends in the world right now are penguins fans and i've met them through fandom my life has changed in incredible ways because of fandom and the thought that we wouldn't have this thing in common anymore was really stressful for me because like some of those other people are still parts of other fandoms i've got friends who still do the harry potter thing i've got you know friends that you know dabble in other situations and i've never been the type i when i focus i focus and, like, hockey has been my life for, like, six years. And I'm like, well, what happens if the next thing I get into, they don't? Or, like, the next thing they get into, I don't? And how will that impact everything? I felt like it was a it was a big scale version of that tiny bit of grief that you feel when someone you really enjoy in the fandom, someone whose work you really enjoy, fan artist or, or fanfic writer, announces, like, oh, yeah, I'm no longer going to be part of this fandom. I'm into this new thing now. Or you just see that they're into a new thing. But that tiny feeling of grief where you're like, okay, so I'm I'm not going to get more involvement from that person. I'm not going to get new ideas from that person. They're not going to be in this space anymore. But it, it felt like the supernova version of that where you're scared that that's going to happen for everyone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Where is everyone going to go? You know, what's going to happen? What's my next creative outlet? Can I keep this going? If I can't, what happens after that? And just this constant deluge of questions of, you know, the what ifs and how do, how do I fix this? Just because it's been such a constant for the last six years of my life. I mean, you know. I still remember where I was when Zane left. So that was obviously a pivotal, <laughs> no, pivotal you, moment you, you in guys, my life. And I, th- I think that's a big part of it because going back to talking about fandom history, I have only been through what I consider to be like one traumatic like fandom event before like contract gate and um I'll bring it up um just because I think I can compare and contrast my emotions between what happened then and what happened with Gino just now um I am going to put out a warning for our listeners that I'm going to be mentioning um suicide during this next bit so um the event I, I'm going to compare this to is much darker and much more serious. So I want to preface that by saying I don't think these two things are equivalent at all. I'm just comparing a very negative thing happening in a fandom that I've been through. So four or so years after I had fallen out of the K-pop fandom, um, my favorite K-pop singer died by suicide. 
I had moved on into a new fandom at this point. I was actually in hockey already, but I still listened to K-pop occasionally as a casual music listener instead of a fandom participant. And I was actually told about this singer dying by a hockey friend who like knew my background with K-pop. It impacted me a lot. And I still have difficulty sometimes listening to that singer now because I can't forget what happened to him. And so the difference between what happened then and the contract situation with how I reacted with Fana, which like I cried during both. It was incredibly heavy for me during both. But um, comparing from a Fana perspective and not from a comparing a real person's suicide to contract negotiations perspective was that my grief for the singer was something I experienced alone. I was not active in that fandom. Like I did not write fic. I did not make gifts. I did not do anything. I was just a lurker. Um, I didn't have any friends in that fandom. So I sat with my, I was on a bus. I sat with my emotions on a three hour long bus ride and dealt with them by myself. Um, I didn't participate in any communal grief over that. It was just me learning that someone who had once been important to me from a fandom perspective had died young. And um, I just had to like swallow that and try and recontextualize the time I spent in that fandom and, you know, try and figure out how I would deal with that emotionally and it was an entirely solo process because again I did not have any like k-pop friends at the time contrasting that to contract gate that was intensely communal I was in the I was in my group chat with my friends constantly and the grief I was experiencing over it was anticipatory grief because I was wrestling with that idea that a space that I cherished and held in high importance might dissolve so it was very different from grieving a real person who was suddenly and unexpectedly gone because there was a real dread with the contract situation. Whereas for that singer's death, there was more like shock and an abrupt reframing of what I knew about the singer and my fandom. And, you know, it was an irrevoc irrevocable change in how I experienced and reminisced upon that fandom and its music. So to me, it's really interesting how all of these things, you know, the between what happened to me with k-pop and what happened to me with hockey just now were acts of grief in their own ways and they played out really differently in how i experienced them and i can compare that too do i think how i experienced grief in like a book that i was a part of i was a really big fan of i still am of the raven cycle by maggie stiefvater and there was a very small contingent of fans for that fandom on tumblr and when the final book of that series came out there was like a grief that we expected like, but it was like a grief that came with closure and, you know, we knew it was ending. And so there was that kind of grief that we were prepared for and knew it was coming, but kind of looked forward to because it was a book and we wanted it to end versus what happened with the singer, where it was the blindsiding, intense, tragic grief of a young death. And I was you know, wholly unprepared and was rocked to my core over it. And then with Gino's contract, the grief was like, this pill we were all struggling to swallow without really like having it yet because most of my social circle was trying to wrestle with the news and prepare ourselves. So like, unlike the book series, which is always going to end and unlike the K-pop star, which no one expected and was terrible and horrifying, you know, the idea of hockey ending was not something we were fully prepared for, even as the possibility of it loomed closer and closer and that kind of anticipatory grief was something that was kind of new for me. And it was really stressful to watch everyone else deal with it. Because like I said, it was the first time I had really participated and done that with community. And I'm like an emotions manager. Like if someone comes to me with a problem, my first response is, okay, how do I fix this? And that was really hard to deal with when we were all struggling 
over what was going to happen. There's, you know, been a lot going on in my life and the lives of my friends. And it was like, how do we fix this when things are looking bad and we're all really sad about what might happen and what's looking increasingly likely, you know, and just sitting with that grief and trying to fix it was incredibly difficult. I'm really fascinated by you. I mean, first of all, I think it's a really good definition or maybe compartmentalization there that that some of it is anticipatory grief, but some of it is that grief that you get from shock. And um, I'm going to mention suicide again, but um, that's super interesting to me, that comparison with this, the K-pop singer, because the thing that I kept remembering or coming back to um, during the Gino contract situation was... Um, I remember when I was in middle school or I don't know, must have been like maybe 12, maybe 13, 14. And um, a player on the German national soccer team died by suicide. And I remember coming into school, coming to class that day and just seeing all the boys, like unanimously, all the boys in my class just crying just sobbing their eyes out and I'd never seen that before I didn't know what was going on I had to ask and that was just that was really interesting because I remember then our teachers the entire day would just talk to us about like how we can deal with that emotion and how we can handle it like it was it was handled so communally in a way that I had never experienced before and especially never experienced before when it it came to men's or boys emotions where it was like they were allowed to show that really really deep grief and it was okay and and we talked about like how how bad that felt and I feel like that's yeah I mean kind of circling back to it was something we mentioned earlier with sports being this interesting thing where like you know it's a business but also it is this venue where we can express huge, terrible emotions like grief in a way that feels communal. And I really think that fandom is a special kind of aspect to that. Because through fandom and through our conversations and my conversations with other fandom friends, I really feel like I was able to go through that in a way that sometimes made it worse, but usually made it better just being able to express what I was feeling, not feeling silly for it. Because when I told some friend who wasn't into sports, they were like, oh, so your your little sportsmen are not getting the millions that they want. And I'm like, you don't understand. This is serious to me. I mean, I think that might actually be a good note for us to kind of end on because I feel like it opens the door to some of the conversations that we want to have about emotional attachment and like communal nature of like experiencing and expressing those emotions how do we feel about leaving it there and then like picking up on some of these threads in future episodes? I love it. I have so much to say and I want to hear, I want to hear every single one of your opinions. We should do like five hour episodes. Just oh, go for it. Oh, come on. No, but I think, you know, I think we're positioned in a really interesting locus of, of the different people who watch hockey and engage with hockey. And like, not that we're unique in that. I think that's true of anyone who's in transformative fandom for hockey, but I really love that we straddle these lines of being socially acceptable and interested, but also in ways that are not socially acceptable. And we've all been through fandoms that have 
ebbed and flowed and gone through very difficult things and have left us with impressions of like what makes fandom good for us and what makes fandom positive for us and with the absolutely overall wonderful experience I've had with hockey I'm really excited to dig into why this space has been so rich and how grateful I am that I think it's going to continue because Evgeny Malkin is a Pittsburgh Penguin and will be for the next Thank several God. years. <laughs> and what a gift that is. Always with Pittsburgh only. No, always for Pittsburgh. Only, only for Pittsburgh. It. Always with Only Pittsburgh. for Pittsburgh. <laughs> like clear eyes, hearts, open, can't, can't lose, lose, open minds, full hearts, win forever. <laughs> you know, that saying. You're doing great. If you'd like to react to the episode or write in with questions or topics for us to discuss, you can reach us at goodwoodpod on Tumblr or goodwoodpod at gmail.com. We can't wait to hear from you.